0: Hello and welcome to another special edition of the TNC podcast. I am honestly filled with joy to be speaking with this guy today. Norwich City and Leicester City midfield maestro, former England under 21 international and full international. We'll get into that. First division PFA team of the year, 96-97. Norwich City Hall of Famer, 204 NCFC appearances and 39 glorious goals ladies and gents i'm joined today by darren edie darren first of all thanks for coming on how are you
1: my pleasure i, I want an introduction i bet you say that's all the boys don't you
0: uh... <laughs> well you know we reeled them off we reeled them off I, I struggled with a few of them you know maybe jens maybe crofty but you know you've got some accolades there darren so it's a it's a deserving intro
1: but interesting is people seem to know more about my career than I do myself which is always quite interesting to hear it every now and again so yes yeah, it's, it's nice to hear some facts like
0: <laughs> right let's cut let's cut the nonsense and get straight into this one of the things I really want to know Darren what was it like going through the North City youth ranks in the in the early 90s what what was it actually like back then was it really a complete shed
1: <laughs> it, it wasn't far off I mean it was um it was a big decision for me to leave the West country where I lived uh, and move right across the country to to Norwich to kind of uh, chase my dream of being a footballer. But for me, it was, um, it was a no brainer. You know, I I kind of did my research even at a young age and realised that Norwich really was a place to be for for youngsters to get opportunities in the first team. So it's a decision I made quite early to do that. But, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was God rest his soul, Gordon Bennett, who we lost just recently, who, Mm -hmm. uh, it brought me to the football club, it was instrumental with, with lots of players from the West Country and beyond. Um, such a, such a great man. Um, and then under the wing of Sammy Morgan, um, you know, sort of through the, the younger ranks of, of Norwich City, and then into the youth team of, of Keith Webb. Um, and it's really interesting. So, I know Keith now as a coach in his FA roles and everything he's done. And let me tell you, he was very different back in the day compared to his FA hat he wears now. It's um amazing really the transition of his career
0: as well as ours I'll, talk, I'll I really want to speak to you about your debut actually we'll get on to that but before that Darren what was the moment in in your your youth times I'll say and obviously you, you started to integrate with that first team and then of course your debut comes but before that what was your what I'm going to call oh my god moment I'm actually I'm, I'm gonna make it
1: but I don't know if I really had one I think I was um I was certainly there wasn't the best player in the team um, there was I mean we, you know you talk about kind of United's 92-93 season or you know youth team and we had something similar on, on a bit of a different scale there was Jamie Curtin, Adi Akinbay Andy Marshall Andy Johnson Chris Sutton was just above us. so there's lots of players that actually came through the youth ranks at that time into the first team and um you know playing alongside Jamie was, was a joy. I knew Jamie as a kid we were in digs together as well but Jamie was the most natural goal scorer I've, I've ever seen. You know his finishing was just unbelievably good. The problem with Jamie was his finishing off the pitch was just as good as well. so he, he, uh, he, he would openly admit now that he doesn't he didn't take his early career probably quite as serious as he should have done um, but you know look at the longevity he's had so perhaps he did it the right way.
0: I mean, you're, you're both actually quite similar, and to be fair, great crack. And what, what was it like kind of, you know, basically more or less growing up with, with Jamie? Because he, he's just such a he's – he's a top man. We've had him on the podcast before, and he's got a great story, and he's still going to this day. Like, what 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 is he? What was he like behind the scenes back then?
1: It was a nightmare. Um, Jamie, was, Jamie was a bit of a bad boy. Um, I, I would like to think I kind of kept him on the straight and narrow at times. But there's so <laughs> yeah. many stories I could go into that um, – I mean, one particular one, I obviously won't mention any names, but he had a girlfriend at the time, and um, she wasn't feeling very well. Um, so we had to go around and see her. She, indeed, I think he took her home or something, um, but she left her inhaler or something at our place or other way around. So we then... I, I was the only one who could drive, Jamie. We couldn't drive at the time, but I hadn't passed my test. So we nicked my landlady's car, drove it to her house, thinking she might be dead by the time we get there because she needed this inhaler. But thankfully... <laughs> All was well in the end. But that, that was the type of thing that we did. We were kind of loose cannons. But as I say, I, I, I'd like to think that I kept Jamie kind of on a on a sort of steady trajectory in towards the first team. Because I think if I wasn't there for him, perhaps he, uh, he would have fell, fell by the wayside. But um, look, um I think we balanced off each other really well. We knew each other. We, we got on great in digs. We had some unbelievably good times back in the, the early 90s in, in highs and Ritzies and all these nightclubs there used to be in Norwich. And um, no, no, brilliant brilliant memories, even back to the times where you know things are very different now in pre-season. You know, Andy Johnson was a good friend of mine. In pre-season, you'd spend your day training and you know, morning and afternoon running and getting your lactate uh, taken in your in your bloods and, and doing all those type of things. You know, really hard work to progressively build yourself at the start of the season. And um, we would then go down the pub in the afternoon. We'd go to the Bell in, in Norwich and have a few pints. So Things have, have certainly changed a little bit, um, but you know that was that was the culture then. I guess that was the way we did things, and, and that was the way we, we managed to relax and and uh, kind of progress into the first team. But yeah, I mean, brilliant brilliant memories of, the, of those times, particularly with that that age group. It was a it was a good group.
0: Well, um, if you're listening or watching to this, be sure to make sure you're following the Talk Norwich City social media accounts because we will be holding Darren accountable to the accusation and uh, we'll be tagging Jamie and we'll see what Jamie Jamie says himself in response to he that. Knows. He knows, don't worry about that. Okay, okay. Um, so moving on now to um, the what I think could be the biggest debut arguably, I mean, that I know of for a Norwich City player, September 93, Vitties arnhem you you actually start your first game for Norwich in the UEFA Cup. How, just talk me through, rather than that game, the moment kind of leading up to that and who told you and and how did you feel? Because to me, that's just like off the scale. Like, how did you handle that? Well,
1: I honestly had no idea, virtually up to the, the day it happened. Um, I've been training with the first team for a while, um, sort of previously, not not too much, um, and I knew this game was coming up. Um, I was 18, uh, and and I think uh, I think I'm still the youngest debutant for Norwich um, at, at the time, and particularly in a game like that, I never thought I'd get anywhere near the squad. Um, so but I remember, Mike Walker calling me in and saying you're you're in the squad tomorrow night, and I was just just disbelief, I guess there was. There was no fear, though, because I was an 18-year-old kid and I'd never experienced yeah. that before. I didn't have any expectations of what it would be like. So, for me, it was just about the excitement of being involved with the first team for the first time. Little did I actually believe I'd get on the pitch and and, and get some game time. You know, I, I thought it'd be like a modern-day kind of, um, uh, you, know, uh, you know, dead now where you, you have to be on the bench for probably seven, eight, nine games before you get any time. But literally... Mm-hmm. I was on for the last 20 minutes in, a, in the first the Cubs first ever European tie, and it was um, it was amazing. You know, I look back on it now and look at some of the teams we we obviously beat, and in, in Bayern Munich and, and played against in Inter Milan. And one particular design memory I have is, is is standing in the tunnel, Cow Road for the second leg against Bayern Munich, and we'd obviously just beat them away from home, which was, which was just unbelievable. <laughs> I don't know it's weird. And when my, my career kind of went downhill from then on, it was weird. It was. Uh, Bizarre. So we, I sat in the tunnel at Car Road against Bayern Munich and I'm, I'm, then they, they, we sort of stood there to come out and then they're walking down the tunnel. And then stood next to me in the tunnel was we're just about to go out. It's Lofa Mateus, who just won the World Cup as captain only a couple of years earlier. It's like, it's just, it, you, you look around and it is a bit of disbelief. But again, I had no fear. I, I had no, I had respect, but I had no respect in a sense. Like I, it never phased me at all because I was young and I had no expectations of actually just how big this was.
0: I was going to ask you that Darren like was there element of, of nerves because as I'm as I'm saying there like what, you're sitting and and you know hopefully none no offence taken you're not the biggest lad right don't mean it's in physically but you're in great shape now but it's in height and now you're chucked in you know your debut's there you, as you said you're lining up in the tunnel um and you've got these huge german lads there was there not an element of you just absolutely shitting yourself like be honest with me
1: um i think there was um, certainly, nerves and anxiety about the occasion, but there, I wasn't. I wasn't. Shit, I just couldn't wait to get going. It was really that feeling of of I, I felt I belonged, but that, that helps from the squad we had around us that made me feel comfortable. You know, I'm, I'm starting as well against Bayern Munich at home up front with Chris Sutton. It's just it's nonsense. And I'm, I'm, but you know, the, the kind of confidence that was installed in me and Mike Walker from Mike Walker and the players around me, making me feel so welcome. It it, it didn't really bother me. And, and I tell you what, don't let anybody ever tell you you're too small. You know, it's something I, I always used to get as a, as a kid. And, you know, you look at some of the best players in the world. You know, if, you, if you're good enough, you're big enough. And, um, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't matter. It, it really doesn't matter. You just have to be driven and, and um, almost use your body in a different way. You know, yeah. you, you learn how to be smart with your body and not get into those physical battles. And actually, if mm-hmm. you're pacey like I was, you know, against some bigger, kind of more cumbersome players, it can actually be an advantage. So, yeah, I, I don't ever buy into the you're too small line at all.
0: No, I, lo- I love that. It's a really good point. I mean, you think about Wes Houlihan, you think about Lionel Messi, of course, we know which one of those two are better. And you're, you're totally right. It's very much a, a case of a lower sense of gravity can, can often actually be a huge power. A name that you mentioned... I to learn,
1: sorry, so I had to learn against in the reserves because that was the, the ideal place to learn. So in Norwich's reserves, I mean, my debut against Chelsea um, away. And Steve Clark was playing right back for Chelsea. He was this, you know, well-known, he's obviously manager, he is manager of now, but he's been around a few times, as manager of Scotland mm-hmm. Um, he was playing right back and he absolutely smashed me in the first five minutes and I kind of knew from then what was required to play in senior football you know yeah. and he said to me you do that again because I got past him he said you do that again I'll break your fucking legs so it was like wow this is what I'm dealing with at this level it wasn't like youth team where you kind of go in listen to your manager at half time everybody's friendly you go out again it was, it was hostile and that's what what um, these younger lads now have to go out and loan for and learn because you can't get that experience anymore in the under twenty threes. You kind of need to get out and be around senior football.
0: Speaking of a, of a, you mentioned a name uh, just a few seconds ago, Darren, and and a player that I think gives off a similar vibe to what of Steve Clark, perhaps back then, Chris Sutton. I'll be honest with you, I want him on this podcast, but he really does scare the shit out of me. What what is he? At, what was he like then? And is he actually like? Is he is he how he is on TV as a pundit? Okay. Because he's the kind of guy that you definitely want on your team because he would just absolutely destroy you if you were on the opposition.
1: Yeah, Such is a great lad. I think Such is, a, in my opinion, he's a little bit misunderstood. I, I okay. think um, he's a. He's quite a complex character. Again, in, in my opinion, I think he's. Um, he will have a little. Think he's a little bit arrogant. Um, he's quite not. I think he's quite shy at times. I think he's. Um, has a persona. It's just his manner, the way he is. He's got a very dry sense of humour. He mm-hmm. would absolutely destroy yeah. you um, and destroys anyone he meets. And I think some people think he's being mean, but he's not. He's just pissing about like like footballers tend to do. So, look, such is, such is a great... Well, such was my first roomie when I got into the into the first team. And um, I remember going away, away from home and, and I think he was already in the room and went in. And it looked like a fucking bomb had gone off in the room because he was like a tramp, honestly. Whatever he saw... <laughs> Whatever he wore, whatever he did, he looked like a tramp. And he still does, he still does to this day. You know, I'm I people have worked with Sutz. Um, you know, he, he he could put on the, the most expensive suit you'd ever seen in your life and he would still look like a bag of shit. Um, but, but that's but, but in terms of a, a player to play with and, and to learn off, and actually he was one of those ones that welcomed me into the team and, and gave me some great... Tips and made me feel welcome. Um, he was he was outstanding as a player. Was just brilliant. You know he could play central defence. You know centre forward. He was he was outstanding. Really really top player. But yeah, tram
0: and and went on to have a, a, an obviously outstanding career, winning the Premier League with Blackburn and and, and beyond. Um, Darren, there's a couple of player questions that I've got in here. And um, one is first of all, who in that Norwich side of '93 when you broke in? Did you, in your opinion, best link up with? And then also, was there perhaps a player, because everyone talks, when everyone says now, looks back on that 93 campaign, that that UEFA Cup run, beating Bayern Munich, everyone says Gossi, everyone says Gunny. But was there a player in there that deserves more credit, do you think?
1: Well do you know what that's that's probably the strange thing about it is I mean Gossi had a stellar season without doubt. Um, it was just just an unbelievable occasion for him and and for the football club. But uh, do you know what the really difficult thing is is to pick out an individual and that was what was so good about that team. It wasn't individuals, it was a great team. As much as Gossie took all the accolades for the goals he scored, that team was sensational. Um it had everything from from defense in terms of Rob Newman, Polston, Butterworth, you know, you had you had Culver House, you had Bowen, you had, you know, and in the midfield, you then had Gossi, Ian Crook, Foxy, um, you know, Dave Phillips, myself. Then up front, you had Efina Cuckoo, myself, Chris Sutton. It just had a bit of everything. It was, it was yeah. kind of a magical time where you had youngsters coming mm-hmm. through, but also lots of experienced head. But there was mm-hmm. no superstars in the team at that time. They were just all top, top players who'd earned the right to be there that just gelled perfectly. And you, you hear about that in teams at times where things just seem to click for them. And that was that season. You know, we had that season where every single player that, that performed in that team did a job. There was no one that let anyone down. You know, Mark Robbins was scoring goals. It was just Gary Megson. you know, had that the midfield. So, this, it was a team that, you know, I've, I've named probably 15, 16 players there. And every single one of them played a part in that UEFA Cup run. Daryl Search was another one. You know, we all spent some prior. You know, they keep riding them off. But they were just had these seasons where everything went right for them. And... I got asked recently about how would the 92 team get on against the one that plays currently for Norwich, who would win. And I'm like, do me a favour. Bayern have
0: got
1: some credit for that, and not we? So, look, it's a very different era. But, but that team, for me, had everything. Had a bit of everything. You know, had Steele at the back. Rob Newman's another one. You know, he had, had a bit of everything. And that, that was a part. Of, but for, I guess for me, it, positionally, you know, I was a winger. I, I used to run at people. So my debut at Fietas Island, I played on the left. Barn Unit, they can't play in the centre forward to Chris Sutton. So, you know, that again showed the confidence that Mike Walker put in me to say, I've yeah. yeah. got this one lad who's 18. You know, I'd rather play him than f- try and fit someone into a position we don't think's right for him. He knew I had a bit of pace and I could run around Sutton and do all the sutzes running for him. <laughs> um but yeah, it was just it was a, it was an absolute team and that and that was it. You know, for me I guess someone like an Ian Crook would always stand out because, you know you pick out a pass any, any week,
0: any day. Such a dreamy Norwich side and such a fascinating inside. And I think you're right. You know, I think looking back at that side, you, you look at them and you're right. There isn't necessarily, I know Gossie gets the accolade for the gold, right. But I, I just feel like, yeah, you're right. It was actually a collective performance very much so. And Darren, one, one thing I want to ask you now is, is about the managers that you've worked under some big characters in there and um, you know Mike Walker you know Martin O'Neill as well really interested to ask you um, which of though which sort of manager at Newra City did you in your opinion thrive under and also which manager was the most difficult because you know Mike Milligan has told me some stories and a half about Martin O'Neill back in the day you know round the dinner table etc. Which manager did you kind of just click with in your time at Norris City?
1: Many would say that about Martin O'Neill because he didn't pick him. So, you know, <laughs> things then. Well, I, I'd i like to think I got on pretty well and worked hard enough and did well enough for, for every manager. But but for me, those two, I guess Mike Walker and Martin O'Neill were the two managers that I, I fared the best under, I guess, because... For me, they had a, a, a way of dealing with players individually. Um, they wouldn't collectively... Well, they are collectively coaches, but you but know, for me, they were managers. They were man managers. They knew that you know, perhaps I needed an arm around me and somebody else needed to kick up the arse. They were very different in, in how they treated yeah. their players. They were very good at, at man managing, and that, for me, was hugely important. And, and also, as well, they didn't do much coaching. So Martin O'Neill and Mike Walker, you wouldn't see them out on the, on the training pitch um, taking sessions so much. They would kind of hang around in the background or you'd only see him on a Friday, you know, a couple of days before, stay or so before a game. Um, and then that, they had that aura about them. For me, I, I like that yeah. because it kind of got you up for the game. Whereas I think sometimes if you've got managers around the whole time, I you know, some, sometimes to say familiarity breeds contempt. And I think sometimes when it's always there in your face and they're there, you kind of lose that little bit of edge. So for me, I, I felt I performed better in the managers that were kind of dipped in and out. And, and Mike Walker and Martin Neal certainly did that. But, their management skills was brilliant. You know, I, I've seen him bollock people who are playing well. I've seen him absolutely put his arm around people when they're, when they're absolutely having a shocker because he knew how to get the best out of
0: them. Martin O'Neill is this or Mike Walker?
1: But, but particularly Martin O'Neill. Martin O'Neill was, was, the, was probably the master at it. Um, as I say, he, he had a way of just uh, annihilating players. And you're thinking, oh my, he's destroying him. But that player would want to go out and prove him wrong. You know, whereas yeah. other people he would have done that too. Would have completely capitulated and and had a shocker. So he knew how to treat them individually, which which was which was massively important for me.
0: Bloody I just couldn't imagine it. I think Martin O'Neill is just so deadpan, like serious that I think you could go one of two ways. It's really interesting to get that insight from you, Dan. I'm going to ask you a bit of a bit of a strong question now, which is: if you could go back through your time at Norwich City and start again as young Darren, left side of midfielder, breaking in, what what would you do differently? And do you have any sort of burning regrets on your playing days for Norwich City specifically? Is there something that you wish you'd said to someone? Is there something that you wish you had done? Should you have kicked the manager's door in at one point? Is there anything that you regret?
1: I don't think so. And I think that's the important part is, is not to have regrets in, in your career. Um, you know, I... My time at Norwich, everything was was going right for me. I was I, I broke into the team at eighteen. I was, uh, you know, consistent in the team from then on. At, at, um, I, I, you know, I won Player of the Season. Um, I got in the England squad under Glenn Hoddle when I was at Norwich in the full squad when I was playing in essentially what is the Championship now. Um, you know, it was on a up trajectory. So actually, you know, I played for every manager. I never played under anyone that I didn't really get on with. Um, so for me, Norwich was was the perfect fit. It was kind of all went a little bit wrong when I left Norwich, or, or things, you know, sort of turned a bit more tricky then. But for me, that was I wanted to play in the Premier League. You know, as much as I love Norwich, and I didn't want to leave. You know, I've often talked about this. I didn't want to leave at the time, but um, circumstances meant that, that I had to essentially. So, yeah, difficult time. But um, yeah, Norwich, no, no regrets whatsoever. I can't honestly I can't think of
0: one. I, I really can't. Good, though, because you shouldn't have any regrets in, in le, le, never mind football in in life, full stop, Darren. And we'll get on to your departure in just a short moment, because um, I'd really like to unravel some of that information, actually. But before we go there, you mentioned his name. It's like you've done this before. You're good at this media business. Glenn Hoddle. We've all seen that picture of, of you and him. England scored 97. And you said it as well. You know, we were in second tier at that stage. Was and I don't mean this in a rude way, but because of the fact that we were in the second tier, was there an element perhaps of you in perhaps some imposter syndrome? Did you did you feel like you were there and you were gonna stay there? And what was it like being in the England team? Because there were some huge, like massive, massive players in that squad at that time. What was that experience like for you being in the second tier?
1: Yeah, we well, you talk about shitting yourself. I, I did at that time because I say I was in I was in the second tier and, and getting called up, and I I was called up late into the squad um, originally and went up and meet them, and uh, they'd all been playing golf at, that day. And you know, back in the nineties, you can imagine what kind of state they were in when I got to the 19th hole. Um, but that was you know you're talking about you know, it was it was Beckham, it was skulls, it was Shearer, it was Gascoigne. I mean Tony Adams. It was just Gareth Southgate's obviously not now the manager. It was yeah. it was just for me, an unbelievable time. And, and you talk about playing in the highest level, and I've, you know, I've played in the Premier League, but stepping up into that full England training was just incredible. The level again, going up, was like, shit, this is what you've got to get to to be able to compete and stay in that squad. Because it was an unbelievable squad at the time as well. It was a squad that, well, I guess, you know we, we always talk about underachieving. So, um, it was, yeah, massively special. Just got fucking injured again. <laughs> so, um, story of my career but you know it, it was just a sensational thing to be part of and um, it all a little bit unbelievable and again the story I often tell was when, when I got the call up normally you get a call in from your manager Bruce Rett was the manager at the time normally you get called into the manager's office and he said oh congratulations you've been called into the England squad you're going to get a phone call from Glenn Hoddle or whoever's the manager at the time you know well done blah 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 I didn't have any of that I got a phone call on my mobile phone bearing my mobile phones weren't that you know, great in those days in the yeah. early 90s, they were, I didn't often have that many calls. I probably had about 10 people on my phone. And the number comes up and I didn't recognize it.
0: So okay. didn't recognize
1: the number, I thought, well, I wouldn't answer it. So I didn't answer it. Then it rang again and again. I thought, I better answer it. So I answered it and I said, Oh, hello. And he said, Oh, hello. Is that Darren? And I'm like, Yes, yeah, it is. Yeah. And he said, It's Glenn Hoddle here. And I went, Yeah, fuck off. And just put the phone down. And, and No. Said, yeah, because I thought it was just one of my mates taking the piss because I never thought of anyone in the squad. So I, I told him to F off. Um, he then, his phone call rang again and again. And I'm thinking, no, it couldn't have been, could it? And it rang again. And I'm thinking, do I leave? Oh, I forgot, I'm going to have to answer it. So I answered it again. He went, no, it, it seriously is Glenn Hoddle. And you can imagine how apologetic I was after that. Like I just binned off the England manager who was calling me into his squad. Into his squad. So, yeah, it was um, bizarre. Because I say normally you get the call up from your manager. You know it's coming. But I, I didn't have a clue. I, it, was, it was totally out of the blue.
0: I bet you he made he made you do some extra runs when you when you joined the squad for that for sure. When
1: you talk about great players. I mean, he used to join in training as well, and um, you know you talk about the level of the standard. Even him in that age when he was then, when he was he was pinging balls about for fun, and, and I was struggling to keep up with him because he was that good.
0: Speaking of pinging balls, put p- balls about for, for fun as well. You speak about the the players in that England squad. Two names that that really really stand out for me there: Paul Scholes, David Beckham what was it like sharing the turf with, with those two lads? Like just, I, I just, I cannot fathom it that you've done that. It's just absolutely incredible achievement.
1: Yeah, it was, um, again, bizarre. I think looking back on it now and that was that era where it was quite clicky and I think you've seen players come out and talk about it in in years about how it was and Dean Ashton's openly talked about how he felt a little bit uncomfortable and I felt exactly the same. As I say, I turned up late to the squad and, um, i was from little old norwich apparently you know this championship club and i've just been called into the england squad and there's very different characters in in that squad at the time And i remember going down for breakfast so we went to the bed in the evening went down for breakfast in the morning still shitting myself because i've just turned up to this squad and I thought i'm going to get down early make sure i'm there early so i can kind of get in the mix and and just be around the lads So I got I was the first one in got my breakfast went and sort of sat down on the table and there's all, all these different tables dotted around and um in comes Andy Cole, gets his breakfast, walks over, goes and sits on another table. And I'm like, fucking hell. So you could see straight away there was this, this there was this division of clubs, like United players sat over there, the Arsenal yeah. players sat over there. And there was kind of me and a few other lads from different clubs all sort of sat together. And it was, it was, very, it was very strange, but there was two, yeah, probably two in particular that, that um, were brilliant as soon as I turned up. Um, and one was Jamie Redknapp and one was Ian Wright. And they both come up and give me massive hugs, saying, welcome to the squad. You deserve to be here. Um, and, and, you know, and that all of a sudden makes you relax. Um, and even Gaz didn't have a clue where I was. You know, he, he didn't have a clue. I remember we were playing pool one night and I'm sat there, this kid in the corner. See, I was only 20. I mean, what was it? I was pretty young, but Gaz was kind of in the height of his career at the time. And I think everybody had, had a few drinks and we were playing some pool. And Gaz loved the game of pool. So I'm sat there sort of biding my time and all the lads are playing. And he says to me, do, do you want a game? I go, yeah, yeah, go on then, You mean we'll set them up? So I set the balls up, put one in the triangle, did it all properly, set them all up. He says, you, "I'll let you break." So I break one didn't go in. He didn't clear the fucking table, didn't get a shot, and he just <laughs> came over gears <laughs> like. And then I walked off and sat down again. <laughs> so was up, me, he played. You know, he spent in the boozer playing pool. It was, um, but you're just been absolute owned by Gazza on the pool table, which is uh, again a nice story to tell, but didn't make me feel great at the time. He could let me pop one, couldn't he?
0: It's, it's so interesting that you speak. I mean, we've heard recently, Jay Humphrey did a fantastic interview with them. Um, I think it was Rio Ferdinand, Frank Lampard and Stevie G speaking about the clicky nature of the England squad. It's almost like detriment to the English football system. We've got such a good league, the best league in the world, supposedly, but that's impacted the international game. And it's fascinating to hear that it was clicky, you know, even back when you broke in as well. And um, Darren, moving on now to when you left, I'm sure there's some interesting um, lines to be opened up about here. December 99, you finally left Norwich for the Premier League for Leicester. But before that, you had interest from Tottenham and Everton. Now, be really honest with me here. Was there a part of you that that actually thought, bloody hell? Because like, they are massive clubs, mate. And I must admit, if I was at Norwich and Everton or Tottenham come calling for me, you know, with the chance to play football at probably arguably a higher level perhaps because I'm younger I don't mean really value it because Norwich were up there at the time but was there a part of you that thought I quite fancy this before Leicester came along well we've got to remember back then is,
1: is Leicester were, were better than Spurs and Everton you know they were sitting higher in the league um they'd performed better and, and for me it was uh I kind of weighed things up Martin O'Neill was there which was another massive pull for me to go there because I've yeah. played under the manager before um so there was all different reasons. My dad was born and bred in Leicester, so I had family around that way. So it was just, it was just a nice fit. And, and for me as well, it sounds a bit strange, but it was the closest Premier League club to Norwich at the time. So for me, in terms of I was always going to want to come back to Norwich, so for me it was about right. I didn't want to leave in the first place. How can I get back to Norwich the quickest? So again, it, it geographically, it was better for me. Um, I, just think, I just felt it was a better fit. Um, you know, there was interest from in Spurs and, and Everton, but... I'd never had nothing um, to do with the interest to a certain level. It was certainly Leicester that really put the feelers out and and made it known they wanted me um, in a a big way. And and when a manager does that, you kind of have a sense of, I think this is the right place to go. And say that team at the time, again, was competing at the top of the Premier League and and winning trophies. So, um, yeah, it's back in the Premier League and under Martin O'Neill where I wanted to be. But as I say, I I didn't want to leave. You know, even when I left at the time, I was... um, I got called in by Bruce Rioch and he said we've accepted a bid from Leicester um, you know you're their record signing you're, you're free to go and speak to them and I'm like well I don't want to go I'm alright <laughs> and he went pardon I went, no, I'm i I'm quite happy I'm, I'm happy playing at Norwich I, I love my football here I'm having a great time and you know family's settled and happy I'm, I'm quite happy to stay here and he went he sort of basically turned around to me and said look if you don't go financially the club's going to go into administration and that's the time when the club was in 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 the shit and um I think Delia had just taken over at the time, um, not long before. And I was kind of put into a position where, well, what do I do? I want to be back in the Premier League. This could help out the club I love as well. It, wow. It's the best thing to do. And even, I even remember leaving and, and um, receiving a postcard from Delia. Um, Bearing in mind, it's a postcard so everybody could see it and read it. And she wrote a lovely, you know, wrote lovely sort of few sentences on there about saying she's going to miss me and wish me all the best for the future. And drew a picture of her face crying on it as well. So... That shows you the level that Delia went to for the care and the respect and the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the kind of I guess the relationship she had with her players
0: and continues to have, by the way, because we've heard this story before with Declan Rudd when he came back to Norwich playing for Preston. There was a there was a napkin pass with a note from Delia. Fascinating to hear that. And
1: she did my wedding cake as well, so you know, not much Yeah. Really? Yes, indeed.
0: Blimey, O'Reilly, someone's done well. And um, right, <laughs> Leicester City there's only one thing I want to talk about with Leicester City, because this is a North City podcast. What, what was Savage actually like to play with? Because the guy is just an absolute nutter. Like he's just off the walls. And again, we speak about Chris Sutton. He's fairly controversial in in his punditry. What was it like to play with him? Because he was very much the pantomime villain, wasn't he?
1: Yeah. Sav was my best mate at Leicester. And still to this day is one of my my best mates. We kind of clicked quite quickly. Um, Sav, uh, what can I put him? He say he was all about the look, he was all about the persona he had. Um yeah. but Sab, actually, you know, I'm probably sure he wouldn't mind me telling you. Probably, Sab was probably one of the most insecure people I've ever met. Wow. Um, he would often, you know, we'd talk on a on a regular basis and he'd ask my advice on stuff and should I do this and should I do it? Even to the point I think he he talked to me before he went on strictly, should, should it shouldn't be something he should do? And um, you know he's, he's, a, he's a great guy, and uh, once you get to know Robbie, he's, he's really soft. Um, but he built a career on this persona, and and a fair play to him, he had to do that because he, you know, he was a he was a lot better player than people give him credit for as well. But he built this persona about himself that irritated people. And as much as he was a pest on the pitch, he was one you wanted in your side, and you didn't want to play against. You know, and even when we got, I'm sure you remember when we got knocked out by Wickham in the FA Cup in the quarter finals. And um, we, were, we were playing at home. And, and so it's Wickham. From, I can't remember what they were in the Championship or League One and we drew them. And we think, brilliant. We're going to get into the semi-finals of the FA Cup. We've got Wickham playing them at home. Obviously, the story is we, we got beat. But I remember standing in the tunnel before the game and the Wickham lads are coming out and Sav says to him, oh, I see you park your coach uh, outside, boys. Did you park it next to my Ferrari? <laughs> he's thinking dick. But the thing was, he didn't even have one at the time. He, did. he was just saying it to try and build this persona again, this kind of hatred that people had for him. He knew he'd wind them up before a game, um, and and that, that worked for him. And um, you know, he was, you know, he, he's a, he's a lovely lad. He's a lovely lad, and 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 uh, a good friend of mine. So I haven't got a bad word to say about him. But he's he's misunderstood.
0: No, but, you know, a, a player that, that played at the highest level for a long time. And as you say, it's that gamesmanship that actually I think is actually somewhat missing in the modern game now. And actually yeah. something that I, I love those characters in football. I think Jose Mourinho is one off, you know, on, on off the pitch. I think we need more characters in football. I think that that's what fans love to see although you know the the opposition fans hated sav as you say it was all part of it it was the pantomime it was the entertainment it was the excitement and drew fouls and it is exactly what happens i have respect for robbie with with the hardship that he went through with his father I, i think that that story was quite something and i really really started to understand robbie savage who he really is from that so I've got respect for Robbie Savage, apart from when uh, Derby came to Norwich and there, I think there was some sort of bet that he did with Craig Bellamy about getting Norwich um, beaten. Is that true? Do you know anything about that? I'm not sure about that, but I
1: remember he did us a favour in the end, let's you know, be honest, because he yeah. off the pitch when he, in injury time, clapping the Derby fans that like he thought he'd got the game won and stopped us from getting promoted. And then we all know that what happened after that, Simon so, Jackson pops up. <laughs> the rest is history. So I think Norwich has got a lot to thank Robbie for
0: yeah no I do agree to be fair right this is going to be where I guess I think a wee bit more difficult for you Darren summer 2003 you hang up your boots it's it's pretty well documented that you've struggled with that to be honest and what I really want to ask you is what was it like watching your mates play on so to speak and and that's of course where your mental health story comes in and you know we'll get onto it in a minute your depression and and panic attacks and stuff like that what what did you actually do? Did you continue watching football or was it telly off? How did you react to, what happened when you hung up your boots?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, I'd mean, i had a few operations at Norwich um, and that continued in my time at Leicester, but I'd always come back from them. So I always felt, no matter what I had done, I I would get back from it. So to wake up, um, in a surgeon's recovery room, um, normally you go back to your room, and they you know, they'll come in and see you later, and you have a bit of a chat. When I woke up, something was very different about it because the physio was there, my wife was there, uh, the surgeon was there. I don't think my agent was there at the time, but there was more people in the room. And then all of a sudden, you start to think, what's going on here? And then I was I was basically told, you know, the operation I'd had had not worked um, in a sense the one before which I'd had the major operation, and they recommended that my career was over. So I went from being a Premier League footballer one day to the next, um, having it all completely ripped and, and taken away from me. So I, I can't describe to people how how devastating and, and difficult that was to deal with. Um, but, but like you say, when I that happened, I completely shut myself away from it. I didn't, because people say, well, you must have loved to go and watch games. And then I'm like, no, why, why would I want to do that? Now, it's the thing I love doing the most, and I'd say to you, Chris, whatever you love to do the most, in Norwich City, going to watch Norwich play football. You know, people say, well, you can't do that anymore, but you can watch your mates doing it. You're like, no
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. so it, it was, it was devastating, and not only it was just, it was the smells at the grounds, the sounds, any kind of reminder of my my playing career. Like I couldn't do the, the thing I've done from the, the time I, you know, I was born, essentially. To have that taken away was was absolutely devastating and, and took me to a place where I completely lost my identity. I didn't know what I was, where I was, what mm-hmm. time it was. And so it was a, it was a really difficult period for me.
0: Well- yeah and actually this is a really interesting point I've obviously done a, done some research before this Darren and, and you were quoted once saying being a professional footballer is like being in a goldfish bowl you don't know about any, you don't know about anything else in the outside world so for me when I listen to that quote and then I and then I hear about you just literally basically the telly is turned off you're off so what the hell did you do like, what did you do with your time honestly
1: Nothing. That that was the point. I thought <clears throat> I'd earned a few quid out of the game at the time, and I was in a position where I thought I'm nearly 30, I was 28, and I'm mm-hmm. kind of almost thinking, you know, if I'm sensible, I can live my life out and do what I want and go and play golf, and that seemed the right thing to do. Um, very quickly, it became evident that it wasn't. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it was a massive struggle. I didn't know if it was a weekday or a weekend. Um, I was getting up and Sort of 10 o'clock during the day and, and even the holidays became a, a, a bit of a bind for me because my knee was still so sore I couldn't go out and play with the kids in the garden I couldn't go for a run I couldn't do anything like that so I was really restricted as to what I could do and it took a massive toll on me and I and I, and I, I didn't think i realised at the time just how much you know I felt so low that I couldn't go into my local post office and look at my postman in the eye I couldn't talk to people I felt like I was Losing myself essentially, and and I shut myself away from it um, to a point where it, it got to the point where you know I, I needed to get that help, and it was it, it was just I mean looking back on it now, it's really difficult to even fathom how I got through what I did, and that sounds a probably a little bit of an arrogant thing to say when people say well, you're a footballer, you know you had a great career, you did this, you did that, but it doesn't it doesn't matter what your career is like, like you know it's it's any devastation that anybody gets at any point in their life, can flick a switch in you to make you. Change and it did to me. You know, I felt a little bit of resentment. I couldn't play anymore. Um, yeah. I didn't want to. My mates. I didn't want to see them playing football. So it, it became. I guess I wasn't a, probably a very nice person for a while. Um, you know, become very difficult, and, and that took its toll on, on everybody around me as well. Um, but my and my wife was was amazing. Um, she she got me through through all that sort of times and. I'm
0: sorry. Yeah. It's okay mate, you're right. It's fine, don't worry. It's fine mate. It must just be I I think that you are a phenomenal man. I think you I'm I'm proud as a Norwich fan to to associate myself with you and my football club and I think that you know Norwich fans look on and I'm so proud of who you are and what you do and and how you represent yourself and hold yourself, mate. I think that what you've done and your journey is utterly inspiring and so so special so mate it's fine you know take a breath but honestly I know that there'll be lots of Norwich fans watching and and listening to this now that will be you know literally clapping the screen or clapping in the parks or wherever they're watching and listening you're a bloody hero mate the this world needs more people like you speaking out and and listening and hearing and, and I'm not just saying it. And you speak of hardship, you know. I had the same thing with with my mum dying in in 2007, non non-Hodg- Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer. It flicks that switch, and even talking about it, you know, it can just completely turn you. And, and the fact that you're getting emotional now as well is it's okay. And I'm so and I'm pleased that you are, it, mate.
1: And that's the difficult part. It's not just about my football career is kind of what, what happened to, to it afterwards and, and the effect it had on other people. And, and, you know, like you, you know, a year after, you know, I, I my, my marriage broke up a couple of years ago and, um, you know, devastated me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, then a year after that, I, I lost my mum suddenly to a brain hemorrhage. So, yeah. you know, and, and it's really tough, I guess, at, at, in current times, just because, you know, I live my own. I'm, you know, I'm not getting to see my kids as, as much as I used to and every day. And it's, it's just, um,
0: yeah, it's often
1: COVID times and the situation with in isolation, it, it all gets on top of you when you're on your own. Um, it is difficult. Um, but you know, everybody has their own, um, tough times in their life. And I've, you know, I'm pretty pragmatic about it now. I don't worry about it as, as much as I used to. I'm certainly more mm. emotional than I used to be. Um, I think that's probably a good thing. I think I'm more empathic than I used to be. Um, it's very- but, it, but it's, it, is, it is difficult you know, I never make any um, exceptions for that. I don't, I don't make any apologies for it. It's, um, it still gets tough at times and like you say, just talking to you and bringing these things up can, can just fire you off and it, and it fires you off in a place yeah. where it just brings these emotions back and as good as you are uh-huh. and, and getting on with your life and doing things, they're, they're still there, they never go away. Um, but you just learn as you, as you go on how to, how to manage them a little bit better
0: exactly and I'm so pleased you brought that up Darren because part, part of this podcast I'll be very honest with you I actually wanted to get you on this podcast more to talk about this subject than football because of you know what you do and continue to do and how you help people and you know I think you raise a great point there you know it just like that, you, you can, you can change. And it's so important to speak, speak out. It's show, it's so important to show emotion. It's it's so important the blokes do this and have these conversations. If not, it will eat away at you inside. And one of my questions to you, Darren, is a lot of people say, you know, talk and I think talking is good. I think we are now at this stage with mental health where we need to take action. So What can you do if someone's watching this or listening to this that doesn't quite understand mental health or hasn't been through hard... Everyone, of course, has mental health. But what can someone that's not suffering with it, how can they empathise and understand what's going on and how can they take action?
1: I think it should be an understanding of it. Um, I think it's too easy to dismiss um, and and get on your own life, which is great, but I think it's... um, so admirable just to ask people if they're okay Um, because a lot of time they still will say they are and and they're not you know and and it can be the quicker you get the help the quicker you seek help and the quicker you start talking to people the lot easier it is to deal with you don't get down to the depths like like i did you know a while back a long time back so it's um it's difficult to understand when you've not been there or you have not had a family member that's been through it i think it's it is difficult but there's a lot more awareness around it now and people are talking and I think for me one big thing I did a big thing with Stephen Fry recently which you, you may have seen which was just yes. amazing Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, and, and he talked about how we, 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 and I said to him about you know it's, it's easy for say easy it's easy for Stephen Fry to come out and talk about it it's easy for me to say it because people will listen because of our persona and the, and the kind of you know look, Stephen Fry Stephen Fry I'm going to live when he speaks I'm going to listen yeah. So what for me, it's about how do those people who are, who are, I guess, in everyday jobs and 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 feel they're just an everyday person in life, you know, the the worries that they have, you know, the same as mine, you know, mm-hmm. they may different causes, but the same worries I have. How do they speak out? Because they're worried about their jobs. How is it going to affect their job if I show some weakness? If I if I need to talk to someone? Yeah. yeah. But you 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 got to, and it, and it helps, and and everybody's understanding. You know, I've not met one person that hasn't been understanding uh was well, one but i won't talk about that um but there's been a, but you know you, you come across the odd person but generally people are very very helpful and, and want to help and, and caring empathic people and it's just so important to make that first step and it wasn't about for me going to the samaritans or, or one of these big you know entities that are out there to talk to because for me that was a bit faceless it was very much you know i felt i was being judged for me it was about to speak to someone i knew who would understand me yeah um, and that was the most important part it was just going to listen and yeah it's kind empathize with me um, and once you start that step it all becomes a little bit easier and, and, and things become much clearer because you understand you're not on your own
0: now yeah I, th- I think you're totally right and you, you've nailed it there Darren and, and something that I've noticed since the since lockdown too is the amount of people dming me saying Chris I'm not in a good place right now and I'm sure you because of your work you've had a lot of people you know open up to you as well I really want to make sure that we use this Talk University platform to to try and help people. So for anyone that's watching and listening to this right now, that is really, really down and like the nights are drawing in, it's harder to get out and exercise. It's cold. The COVID fear is, is, is among us. And I don't mean to be a negative Nancy, but what, the reason why I want to say this is what would you say to those people that are alone in their homes right now? What do they need to do?
1: Reach out. Um, you have to. The longer you dwell and you don't, the, the worse it can get. Um, it, it's um, it's easy to say, but it's once you make that first step, um, it really does open the door to to relief and, and the weight off your shoulders. Just to be able to say that in the first place that like you're struggling. Yeah. Um, I think it's very easy to not, and it's very British not to you know stiff up a lip. Whereas I think yeah. if you do, you, you'll be surprised just how many people there are that, that want to help um, and. and Family member, a friend, and even sometimes just somebody you don't know that well, because they listen without. For me, yeah. was, I, I like that because they listened without judgment, because they didn't know yeah. you that, so they, they wouldn't have a, a side from one area. And think, well, maybe you're feeling this because of that way or that way. They would just listen to you and and kind of really mm-hmm. get into the nuts and bolts and understand how you're feeling because of the way you're feeling, not anything else. So it's just about just just speaking out to someone, and, it, and it's easy to say because then you think, well, what follows on next? But everything else does follow on next you know you you then go and see your doctor and and medication and and this this frightened sort of you know sort of stigma behind medication and and, you know if it helps it helps and and it does you know it takes the edge off and and you don't become a different person you don't lose anything it just helps you get through the period you might get through.
0: Darren if you don't mind me asking were you on medication because you've had a panic attacks anxiety were you on medication?
1: Absolutely, yeah, and, and do you know what the amount of people I'd spoke to who I've known for years and years who openly talked to me afterwards and saying, "Well, I've been on it for years. I've been on this. I've been on that. I've been taking," it. and yeah. I'm like, "Oh my god!" So oh, if, no, you, you'll be surprised. You really will be surprised. But I think you know it, it. It's difficult. You have to stick with it because not every you know chemicals in the brain are very different, and it treats different people different ways. Because we all have different personalities, which are all created by chemicals in our brain so you have to get the right type of medication to suit you and some doesn't, yeah. you know, some don't and it can have an adverse effect but you've got to stick with it and once you do and you get through that period of time things become a lot clearer and, and the fog starts to lift and, and it does and, and once you you know i, I feel a little bit more to i'm about a bit more pragmatic now than i used to be I, I used to worry about everything um whereas now i'm not so much i don't worry about those little things i don't sweat the small stuff so much um, yeah because that, I think, because once you've been through these things I've been through and, you know, my mum and the breakup in my marriage and, you know, and losing my career, it, it, it gives you a sense of pain that I don't think I'd ever experienced before. So to, to have that, it's almost like another string to my bow, to my armoury. I, I think it's made me a better person and a stronger person than it was before I was like that. So as much as it was difficult and it's horrific and, and I still have terrible times and I still miss you know, my wife and my family and all these type of things. I still get all that, mm. but I, I, I'm I, better equipped to deal with that now than I was, you know, much more yeah. better than I
0: was before. I, I think that's such a valid point. I think, first of all, my, my, my response to all of that, Darren, is you have to want to be helped. I think that's really important because if you're just shut off and closed-minded, it's so difficult to, to allow people in, and I feel like I can speak because of the experience I've had with my mum. And the other thing I'd say is you speak now – now you view it as almost another string to your bow. The pain, the adversity that you've been through—I feel the exact way, Darren. Because of because of my mum passing when I was fourteen, it's now like a superpower to me. Where nothing can ever be that bad. So little comments or negativity or or something shit that goes on in my life—it doesn't matter. So try and flip that mentality. It's not—it's a lot easier said than done, of course, Darren. And um, one more big question because I've taken you on a, on an emotional roller coaster. What legacy do you want to leave on planet Earth? I mean, that's a question, isn't it? I mean, well, sorry, mate. Okay. I guess first, all, first. When, when you die, what do you want someone to say at your funeral?
1: I guess I just want to say he was a good guy. Um, <laughs> like it. You, you know, that, that's that's enough. I don't want I don't want accolades. I don't want anything. I just want people to remember me as a as a, as a decent bloke. Like I took care of my kids, and I want to be. Good dad to them and, and 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 try and do the right thing. You know, I'm I'm not trying to say I'm I'm some kind of messiah or, or anything, you know. I make mistakes and I've made a lot of mistakes in my life and, and I continue to make mistakes, but, but I learn from them, I try to learn from them and, and try and make myself a better person. And I think just wanting to be remembered as as as, a, as someone who could help others, I guess. And that sounds a that sounds a shitty thing to say, it sounds kind of pathetic, but it's about, I guess it is about. Doing the right thing and, and, and just being trying to be a good person because kindness doesn't cost anything, and, and I've learned that. You know, I've, there's a lot of sniping going on in the world, and a lot of backstabbing and a lot of hatred, and you know, it, it kind of goes over my head now. Was before it used to really bother me. You know, an analogy I used to use was I, when I played football and I'd play in front of seventy thousand people, they all cheering your name. I remember the one that called me a wanker out of all those people. Yeah. And it would, me. it would bother me so much, but you know, those things don't tend to bother me anymore. You know. It, don't get me wrong you know the, the bad times and the hard times that i still have occasionally bother me and that I get upset and i worry about them but but i i realize now that they'll pass and, and, and things will be better but for me it's about i guess yeah i don't know just just wanting to be a good guy and people remember me for that i mean nobody remembers you know nobody wants to be remembered for being an asshole, do they so i'll go for, i'll go for the good guy label
0: absolutely love that thank you so much for opening up today darren i really appreciate it just to just one final thing obviously thousands and thousands of Norwich fans watching and listening to this all over planet earth now do you have a message for them at all?
1: Um, On the ball city would be one first of all
0: (laughs) (laughs) something more meaningful but look look
1: I think it's um, stick with your club. Your your football club is a very, very special football club. I've come to realise that probably since I finished playing more than I did when I played in it. Um, Seeing the people around it, the people who work behind the scenes, I don't think you get to see that so much. And and the fantastic work the football club does, it's it's an amazing club to be part of because, you know, I've noticed this in recent times. We did the the stuff for the Stephen Fry article and and the the piece of him and and with other people working with the football club and and the media team. They're very, very good at being in the forefront of challenging stigmas and stereotypes and yeah. inviting people in and doing the right thing and as a football yeah. club that's something that Norwich City fans should be very proud of because every fan I speak to around the country from other football clubs has great admiration Norwich City and that for me is is key to, to
0: anything. Love that Darren thank you so much and that is it for everyone watching and listening to this now we really appreciate your time and attention as always thank you Darren for coming on really appreciate your time today buddy. On the ball, City mate no problem at all. Thank you very much. And don't forget, if you're listening on iTunes, give us a five star review, not a four star. Don't you dare do that. If you're watching on YouTube, give us a thumbs up and give us a tweet. If you've enjoyed this episode today, tweet Darren, tweet myself, tweet Talk Norris City. We want to hear from you. What did you think? Let's hear your tweets. Thank you so for watching. Chris
1: made me cry. No one's done that before.
0: <laughs> mate, I'm proud you did, and I'm sure Norwich fans will say the same. Thanks very much, mate, and on the Ball city.